You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Before we get into things today, I want you to go and download the free app Vodacast and listen to this episode there. Vodacast is a podcast player like you already listened through, but what sets it apart from the others is that they provide deeper digital stories. For example, if you listen to this story through Vodacast, you can immerse yourself in bonus content, including articles and images relevant to what you're listening to. As you listen on Vodacast, the bonus content appears at the appropriate time as you listen. I'm going to be mentioning some of the things you can see on Vodacast throughout this episode, so download now to make sure you don't miss out. Just click on the link in the show notes or search for Vodacast, V-O-D-A-Cast, on the App Store or Google Play. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. In 1938, the local Republican Party in Milton, Washington, elected a new committeeman to represent them in county elections. Boston Curtis only received 51 votes. He didn't give a speech or put forward a platform, but he was running unopposed, so that was enough to secure him a victory. Unfortunately for the Republicans of Milton, Washington, they were about to learn what a jackass Boston Curtis was. Like, literally, Boston Curtis was a jackass. Or a mule, technically. Milton's Democratic mayor, Kenneth Simmons, had wanted a jackass so that he could say his Republican opponents had voted for a donkey, the symbol of the Democratic Party, but I guess that Boston the mule was as close as he could get. He'd taken Boston down to the courthouse and had him sign the paperwork with an inked-up hoof print. Said Simmons, It was a pretty mean trick to play on a mule, getting him into politics that way and making a fool of him, but at least Boston Curtis can congratulate himself on being no more a donkey than the 51 Republicans who voted for him without taking the trouble to find out who he was. The news of the mule elected to office made Milton a national story, even covered in Time magazine. It was so well known that two years later, a columnist in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, could make Boston Curtis the button of his satirical coverage of the Democratic National Convention and expect readers to still get the joke. It was a crowning achievement for Ken Simmons, who'd always been a mile or two outside the box. As a youth, he was a powerful swimmer, who was, so he said, in the running to play Tarzan in the MGM RKO pictures of the 30s. He lost that role to five-time Olympic gold medalist swimmer Johnny Weissmuller. So Ken Ketchup Simmons learned to hold his breath, built a dive tank, and went around Washington in a carnival as Aquisa, the human fish. 
He not only became the mayor of Milton, but also its chief of police and fire captain. Aside from getting Boston Curtis elected to the GOP, his second most famous policy was a plan to curtail what he called the town's Halloween depredations, damages and vandalism that were known to cost Milton some $3,000 a year in repairs. Simmons tried to put an end to the damages by hiring the biggest, baddest kids in town on as temporary police officers for the holiday, either to keep the peace or to stop being the ones that were doing the damage. They were paid a buck fifty to help. The first year it worked, but the second year the biggest, baddest kids in nearby Fife, Washington heard about the deal and decided to see just how big and bad their Milton counterparts really were. The Halloween peacekeeping mission turned ugly, with some 40 boys on the streets of Milton in a gigantic dust-up. The Milton kids turned a fire hose on the Fife ones, and after a fight over it, 20-year-old Jimmy Cook was cracked in the skull by the nozzle. Not only did Simmons have to break up the fight and disband his holiday special forces, but he also had to drive Jimmy Cook to the hospital. Later on, he bought up a plot of land from a retired rodeo clown and built a resort on it with a clubhouse, boardwalk, high dive, and swimming. It was so popular that a whole city popped up around it with a population several times larger than Milton ever had. It's called Bonnie Lake, Washington, where you can visit Lake Ken Simmons Park and see the monument to the city's founder, the inscription on which begins... Whether you consider him a scoundrel or a hero, and I think that really tells you something when even your memorial opens with, sure, we all know he was a dick. The other thing about Ken Simmons was that in 1938, he... Oh no, right, I already told you about the mule. Well, there is no other thing to be said about Ken Simmons. Well, one source said he owned a pet bear, but after that, there's nothing more to be said about Ken Simmons. The story of him and the committee mule Boston Curtis... It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't connect to some larger theme or idea or history or point. It's just a weird little story. This, by the way, is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and over the years, I've managed to forage a whole lot of stories like Boston Curtis's. Stories that could have been whole episodes back when this show began and things only ran for 10 or 15 minutes, but nowadays they're just too short. Sometimes, if I hold onto them long enough, I find a bigger angle into which they can be included. Other times, they become bonus episodes for Patreon supporters. But a lot of them aren't so lucky. These are good stories, great stories, even. It's not their fault that I feel compelled to make episodes longer and longer so that you maybe don't mind all the commercials so much. So today, I'm going to set a few of them free. No theming, no larger purpose, just some really interesting stories told without padding that meet one of this show's stated goals. Giving you fun trivia to bring up at dinner. There's a title for you. Today's episode, in some number of parts trivial. Flew the Coop On April 11, 1941, an invasion was discovered on the east coast of the United States. While most Americans of the time were worried about an attack from Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, or Imperial Japan, the one that Richard P. Fisher and Robert Hines stumbled upon at Jones Beach, Long Island, was much less bombastic. A small, brown bird with a splash of rosy red over its head and breast. You can see it. Well, not the exact same one. You know what I mean. You can see it now if you're using the Vodacast app. Fisher and Hines knew what it was, but not how it got there. So they wrote to John J. Elliott, an ornithologist who published a weekly column on local birds for the Nassau Daily Review Star. At first, Elliott was skeptical, 
But further reports came in from other birders at Jones Beach saying that they had seen or heard the bird there. Then it was gone. No further sign of the tiny, pinkish bird was to be found at Jones Beach or anywhere else on Long Island. Until the next spring. In March of 1942, John Elliott himself found seven of the birds on a pine tree in Babylon, Long Island. The next year, he spotted about a dozen adults and a nest with four hatchlings. Elliot was now very much on the case of the finches. He surveyed Long Island in 1944 and found 18 adults along with several nests of young. He counted 24 adults in 1945 and 38 in 1946. In an article for the Linnaean Newsletter, John J. Elliott explained that the birds were not just living on Long Island, but thriving there. That much he knew. What he couldn't explain was how they had possibly gotten there. It's impossible to talk about the birds in any more detail without giving away the ending to anyone in the United States who owns a bird feeder. Since the conclusion of this story, they have spread to everywhere in the contiguous U.S. and into southern Canada. 80 years on from Fisher and Hines writing Elliot, the birds they saw are so ubiquitous and unremarkable that most people would never even know that they were invaders. If anything, they're a little bit beloved. But up until 1941, the Hammerus Mexicanus, or house finch, was only ever seen west of the Great Plains. They were mainly found in Mexico, thus their species name, and through the southwest of the U.S., Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, as well as up the west coast, California, Oregon, Washington. They could sometimes be found in Nevada or southern Idaho or even in parts of Montana, but there was no record, no record whatsoever, of a house finch population in the Great Plains. There were no house finches in the Midwest. There were no house finches in the American South, and there were certainly none on the East Coast except for Long Island, where all of the sudden, they were showing up everywhere. John Elliott couldn't figure out how. House finches are fairly sedentary. They generally don't migrate. They certainly don't migrate east. And even if they did, how would they end up in Long Island without first crossing the rest of the country? In his article, Elliott entertained a number of possibilities. Maybe someone on Long Island had been keeping them as pets, and they had escaped. On March 6, 1890, a pharmacist named Eugene Shefflin had released a cage full of birds. The story goes that Shefflin had a wild idea. He thought it'd be cool if you could see every bird ever mentioned in the works of William Shakespeare within the confines of New York City's Central Park. There's a lot of reason to doubt that that's true. There's no source for the Shakespeare detail until 50 years later, and Shefflin was a member of the American Acclimatization Society, which was interested in introducing European animals into North America for less poetic reasons. But there's no question that Shefflin did attempt to introduce a great number of birds to Central Park, and yes, most of them were mentioned by Shakespeare. In Act 3, Scene 5, Romeo and Juliet, having just gotten busy for the first time, have a cloying, insufferable argument about what time it is. Wilt thou be gone? It is not yet near day. It was the nightingale and not the lark that pierced the fearful hollow of thine ear. Nightly she sings on yon pomegranate tree. Believe me, love, it was the nightingale. It was the lark, the herald of the morn. No nightingale. Look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. Night's candles are burnt out, and jocund day stands tiptoe on the misty mountain tops. 
Oh my god, I hate teenagers. Shefflin tried to introduce both nightingales and skylarks to Central Park, but neither of them stuck. Neither did the chaffinch, mentioned in Midsummer Night's Dream, or the bullfinch, which isn't mentioned in Shakespeare from what I can tell, but which Shefflin tried unsuccessfully to introduce to New York as well. That seems to be a point against the Shakespeare theory. But there's no denying that the two birds Shefflin did have success with are mentioned by Shakespeare, coincidentally or otherwise. In Act 5, Scene 2 of his eponymous play, Hamlet alludes to the Gospel of Matthew, saying, There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. Either as a consequence of this reference or otherwise, Shefflin introduced the house sparrow to Central Park in 1860, which is now one of the most numerous birds in North America. Likewise, Henry IV Part One opens with King Henry refusing Hotspur's request that he pay ransom on Hotspur's brother-in-law, Edmund Mortimer. In Scene 3, Hotspur is still trying to find a way to convince Henry and angrily brainstorms aloud. He said he would not ransom Mortimer, forbid my tongue to speak of Mortimer, but I will find him where he lies asleep, and in his ear I'll holler Mortimer. Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak, nothing but Mortimer, and give it him to keep his anger still in motion. Whether because of that speech or not, Shefflin introduced the starling to Central Park on March 6, 1890, and they quickly overran the entire continent. Maybe, John Eliot wrote, the house finch was a case like Shefflin's. Maybe some admirer of the birds had purposely introduced them to Long Island. Or else, he conjectured it was possible that some small number of house finches had been brought to New York accidentally, perhaps stowed away in an ornamental shrub that was carried by train to an East Coast nursery. Anything was possible, but John Eliot couldn't say for sure. And he doubted anyone else could either. On that, John Eliot was wrong. By coincidence, Dr. Edward Fleischer of Brooklyn, New York, was a subscriber to the Linnaean newsletter and read John Eliot's report on the house finches of Long Island. He then wrote a letter, which was published in the next issue, explaining how they had gotten there. In January of 1940, Fleischer had gone by a bird store in Brooklyn and seen for sale there what were advertised as Hollywood finches. An amateur birder himself, he recognized them as house finches, and he immediately went about trying to put an end to what he thought was their illegal sale. Unfortunately for Fleischer, the New York game protector disagreed. The birds had been sold by an aviary in California, where they weren't protected by law, and brought to New York, where they weren't native, and thus were also unprotected by law. But Fleischer wasn't done. He contacted the acting chief of the Federal Division of Game Management, who said that the trapping and sale of house finches may not be a state crime in California or New York, but it was a federal crime. The 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act between the United States and Mexico had named the house finch as an internationally migrating bird between the two countries, even though they didn't actually migrate much. At the same time, the National Audubon Society, which Fleischer had also contacted, got on the case in a way that you wouldn't expect the National Audubon Society to do. Richard Poe, founder of the Nature Conservancy, was then at the Society, and he turned the inquiry into the sale of house finches in Brooklyn into a daring bit of Mission Impossible-style espionage. He enlisted other members of the Society to help him by going undercover as bird buyers. 
they canvassed pet stores around New York City and found 20 of them that sold the so-called Hollywood Finch. They then traced the birds back from those pet stores to a single wholesaler. Poe posed as a potential buyer, but the man in charge told him that he couldn't sell any at the moment. There was someone breathing down their necks at game management. Wink, wink. Give it a week, he told Poe, and we'll work something out. Maybe we'll start calling them purple finches to get around the law. From the wholesaler, the Audubon spies were able to work back the house finches to a number of California bird shippers. One of them candidly explained to an undercover birder that they'd been skirting the Migratory Bird Act by calling the finches red-headed linnets, a species which was not only unprotected by law, it didn't even exist. He estimated that altogether, the trappers of California had sent a hundred thousand of the birds to the east. So this was a major operation, and on April 1st, 1940, U.S. game management made their move against them fully and actively banning the trapping and sale of the house finch and prosecuting those who were caught in the act. It seemed like it worked. With the help of the National Ottoman Society and Richard Poe's network of secret bird spies, the underground network of house finch poachers was put to an end. But, as we already know, the story didn't end entirely happily. We don't know precisely who or how the bad news happened, but I think we can imagine something like this. A Brooklyn man woke up in a sweaty panic one night in April 1940. He was having that dream again. The suits kicking in his door, guns drawn, walking him in cuffs past his wailing wife, past the neighbors, staring at him in disgust. He couldn't take it anymore, so he crawled out of bed before the sun was up and slinked into his business. He packed up the evidence of his crime into the trunk of his car and drove out of the city, his eyes darting nervously for the rearview mirror the whole time. New Yorkers turning to Long Island to hide their sins wasn't a new thing, but this pet shop owner didn't go to bury a body. He went to release his stock of illegal house finches. And from him, the house finch joined the sparrow and the starling as one of the most successful invasive bird species in eastern North America. A man, a plant, a dog, Mandrake. In December of 1908, a man took a job near Stratford-upon-Avon, digging and clearing an overgrown garden at a long-neglected estate. As he dug around with his spade, he suddenly stopped and turned white as a sheet. In a panic, he fled the property and didn't come back. According to the Oxford Dictionary of Plant Lore, he was dead within a week having fallen down a flight of stairs and broken his neck. What caused the gardener to run for his life, and in the superstitious insinuation of the Oxford Dictionary, to lose his life, too, was a plant. His spade had cut the large root of a vine called white bryony. But the gardener thought it was something else. The infamous mandrake plant. It seems probable to me that most people who know of the Mandrake today are familiar with it through the Harry Potter books, and it seems like every article written about Mandrake for the last 20 years has assumed the same thing. My favorite literary mention of Mandrake, however, comes from my favorite play, Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, which is about exactly what it says it is. I don't know why people get so confused about it. 
While waiting for Godot under a single large tree, Vladimir and Estragon try a lot of things to pass the time. What about hanging ourselves? asks Estragon. It'd give us an erection, answers Vladimir. An erection? shouts Estragon. With all that follows. Where it falls, mandrakes grow. That's why they shriek when you pull them up. Did you not know that? asks Vladimir. Let's hang ourselves immediately. <laughs> In that one absolutely fantastic exchange, Beckett really packs a lot of Mandrake mythology. But then again, there's plenty to pack. Mandrakes are mentioned in some of the oldest pieces of writing available today. In the book of Genesis, Jacob's son Reuben finds some in a field. Jacob's wife, Rachel, believing that the mandrake will help her bear children, asks her sister Leah, who is also Reuben's wife, this is the kind of close interbreeding that happens when you start all of humanity from a guy and one of his ribs. Anyway, Rachel asks Leah if she can have some of the mandrake root to treat her infertility, and says... If she'll give her some, Rachel will let her sister Leah sleep with her husband, Jacob, who is also Leah's father-in-law. <sighs> Too good a deal to pass up. So Leah screws her father-in-law, Rachel gets the mandrake root, and they both end up pregnant. Although it takes a good while for Rachel. Probably the reason Rachel believed mandrakes would help her conceive is because... According to many people, in many times and places, all over the world, the roots of the mandrake resemble a person. And I only put it that way because I do not, for the life of me, understand in what sense the mandrake root looks like a person. Now, drawings of mandrake roots, oh sure, they, they look like people. But the actual mandrake roots? Eh. But who am I to argue with practically the entire past? Oh, I'm the guy that does that, is who. Still, I'll give it a pass this time. Let's everyone just pretend we can see the people in the mandrake roots, all right? Great. The other important quality of the mandrake is that, as a member of the nightshade family, it's poisonous. But not just any kind of poisonous, it's a hallucinogen and a soporific, which meant that as far back as Galen and Dioscorides, people were using it as an anesthetic although each of them warned that you had to be careful with the dosage since it was distressingly easy to make a patient sick or dead instead of anesthetized. This tightrope walk was less important when the Romans started giving Mandrake to the crucified. If it killed them faster, that was punishment. If it eased their pain and kept them alive longer, that was also punishment. Ah, Roma. So you had this plant that was pharmacologically potent and, according to a lot of people somehow, looked like a person. Ooh, no, oh, I just found a picture of a mandrake root that does look like a person. Oh, I take it all back. Ooh, ah, I hate it, I hate it very much. And you had better believe that you can see a picture of this monstrosity if you're listening via the Vodacast app right now. Okay, so mandrake can look like people and thought medieval Europeans, the kind of person a mandrake looked like determined its power. If you wore an amulet of a root that looked like a baby, it would aid in fertility. If it looked like your unrequited love, then get ready for some requitin by gum. There were all kinds of mandrake roots that could make you rich or healthy or get revenge on your enemies. As you might expect, demand for mandrake root in Europe skyrocketed. Supply, on the other hand, was an issue. 
For one, mandrake doesn't grow well outside of the Mediterranean, and for another, as alluded to, most mandrake roots don't look like people and so weren't magically useful. Luckily, the wisdom of the free market fixed all these issues. In England, people began substituting white bryony, which grew there, for mandrake, which did not. The roots weren't nearly as person-like, but that could be fixed with a little creative sculpting. While mandrake roots looked, at best, a little like creepy people, a carved bryony root could look a lot like whatever kind of person you wanted, especially after millet seeds were attached to form a sort of plant toupee, or a plant beard, or plant pubic hair. That's a lot of plosives. Back in the Mediterranean, real mandrakes were getting stolen and poached, and the theory, born of absolutely no actual evidence, mind you, is that this is how mandrake got its most famous myth. If you pulled one out of the ground, it would scream, and that scream would kill anyone in earshot. The theory, again, nothing behind it but a little bit of common sense, which is always dangerous, is that this myth was spread as a deterrent, a sort of alarm system against mandrake thieves. The catch was that it also inhibited the proper mandrake farmers from going around picking their own crop. Instead, they developed a procedure for safely removing the screaming plant from the ground. And this sounds ridiculous, so let me state clearly that this procedure is attested to in many different documents, so while the notion that the myth was developed purposefully as a security measure is unsupported, the way to get around the security measure is extremely supported. You can see a couple of examples if you're listening via the Vodacast app right now. What a mandrake farmer would do was bring a dog over to his crop tie it to the base of the plant. In some versions, it's tied by a leash, but other sources suggest just tying the dog's tail directly to it somehow. Then the farmer tells the dog to sit and stay. He moves a safe distance away and maybe plugs his ears with wax, and then he throws a nummy treatum in the direction of the dog, who runs for it, pulling the plant free of the earth. Depending on the source, the dog would either immediately die or else live on for a day. No, no, don't be sad. Obviously, the dog didn't actually die because the mandrake didn't actually scream, and how people kept doing this for centuries without putting two and two together is totally baffling to me. Even more baffling, however, is the other myth reflected in Godot, that mandrakes grow from the semen or blood of hanged men. What a sentence. According to ancient Greek legend, mandrakes grew wherever the fluids from Prometheus's liver fell when the eagle chomped into it, and the Romans used mandrake in crucifixion. So, maybe, suddenly, in the 16th century, Europeans slammed these two ideas together? In his 1568 book New Herbal, botanist William Turner attempted to take a knife to this and other beliefs about mandrake. He warned about the forged bryony roots, warned about the toxic effects of using too much as a sleep aid, and finally took aim at the dead man's semen and or blood myth. But it groweth not under gallows, as a certain doting doctor of Cologne in his physic lecture did teach his auditors, neither does it rise of the seed of man that falleth from him that is hanged, Neither is it called Mandragora because it came of man's seed, as ye forsate doctor dreamed. Who this doctor of Cologne was is long lost to history, but his lecture sure proved more popular than Turner's admonition of it. 
Before Beckett, or Rowling for that matter, but let's all try to forget about Rowling, shall we? A bevy of novelists, poets, playwrights, and philosophers, not least of which was that darn William Shakespeare again, spread the Doctor of Cologne's legend on the wind. Maybe the most entertaining version of the Mandrake myth comes from a romantic comedy by everyone's favorite romantic comedian, Machiavelli. <laughs> Truly the Nora Ephron of 16th century Florence. In his play The Mandrake, Machiavelli spins the myth of Mandrake as aphrodisiac with the myth of its screaming deadliness. When the elderly lawyer Nicia and his young wife Lucretia are unable to have a child, they appeal to a local doctor, who tells them he can fashion a potion out of Mandrake for Lucretia to take, which will make her fertile. The only catch, says the doctor, is that the first person to lie with Lucretia after she sips the dram will die. The doctor convinces Nicia to find a local tramp to sacrifice on the altar of his wife, not knowing that said local tramp is actually said local doctor, and said local doctor is actually Kalamako, a rake who concocted this whole situation with the help of a crooked priest to sate his lust for young Lucretia. For some impenetrable reason, halfway between 16th century social mores and thick slathered plot contrivance, Lucretia, after being tricked into sleeping with Kalamako, becomes his lover, and that is the happy ending. All of these stories were so prevalent that even in the 1950s, Samuel Beckett could mention them offhandedly and expect audiences to know what he meant. And they were taken so seriously that a gardener could run off the job in 1908 and die. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. And by Indeed. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed and only pay for quality candidates that meet your must-have requirements. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. 
Indeed knows how important it is to make the most of your recruiting hours and dollars. With Indeed, you can save time and money by setting your must-have qualifications and only paying for the quality candidates that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Small business owners, startups, freelancers, entrepreneurs, do you know the number one way to avoid unfair bank fees? Step one, close your account. Step two, open a new Novo free business banking account. Novo is the number one business banking app because it's built from the ground up to be powerfully simple and free business banking that Money Magazine called the best business checking account of 2021. With Novo, there are no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Sign up for free in under 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash the constant. Then they'll mail you a free Novo debit card and you get free ATM use. Novo makes banking easy and secure. You can manage your account in Novo's customizable web, Android, and iOS apps with built-in profit-first accounting and invoicing. Plus, you can tag each transaction and upload receipts. Novo seamlessly integrates with leading business tools and services like Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks, and more for free. Plus, Novo offers $5,000 in perks and discounts just for signing up. Get your free business banking account in just 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash the constant. Go to banknovo.com slash the constant to sign up for free right now and get a free copy of Novo's small business starter guide. Banknovo.com slash the constant. It's a trap. Let's imagine you wanted to start a map company. A course of action I wouldn't advise in this the year of our Lord 2021, but hey, I get it. Maps are cool. I've talked a lot about them recently, and I'm going to talk even more about them in the near future. So if anyone understands your enthusiasm, it's me. Let's talk about it. You want to make maps. Well, there are basically two ways to go about it, right? The first is that you have to hire someone, preferably a cartographer, who will probably be greatly relieved to finally find use for their bachelor's degree. That cartographer will probably have to hire a surveying team. I'm going to guess that's a union gig, so I hope you've got deep pockets. And then they'll all go out and take detailed and expensive bearings of the land in question. Wait a second, you say. I didn't want to get into all of that. I was thinking I'd simply pull up the old Google Maps, take a snapshot, and then Photoshop over it with some adorable illustrations of cartoon kittens. To which I say... Actually, I take back what I said about not starting a map company. That sounds like the sort of thing the internet would positively devour. Is it too late to get on the ground floor with this thing? But on the other hand, I say, can you just copy Google Maps? Is that allowed? Is that legal? Would you get caught? Well, I'll get back to the first two questions, but that third one is where we're going to live for this story. Because let's say you do make your cartoon kitten map company, and then a few months later you discover a cartoon puppy map company that you think is ripping you off. How would you prove it? Maps, after all, are sort of factual documents, right? 
like encyclopedias or dictionaries or phone books. Remember phone books? They're directories of real information. So if you think Puppy Maps is ripping you off, or if Google Maps thinks you're ripping them off, what could you do about it? Making a fresh reference book of any kind is laborious and expensive. Plagiarizing one, however, is dirt cheap. And so long as your initial source is accurate, there's no way for anyone to credibly accuse you of stealing their work. But that clause, so long as your initial source is accurate, well, that's the tricky part. See, map makers and dictionary makers and encyclopedia makers and phone book makers and so forth long ago realized this problem. And they long ago came up with a solution. Intentional inaccuracies. If you were, say, the new Columbia Encyclopedia and you wanted to create a way to test for plagiarists, all you had to do was make up some bullshit, plop it in your book, and then if you discovered another encyclopedia with the same bullshit entry, you'd know they'd been copying off your work. The new Columbia Encyclopedia's 1975 edition contained what is probably the most famous example of a fictitious entry, which you can read along with me right now on the Vodacast app. Mount Weasel, comma, Lillian, Virginia, 1942-1973. American photographer, born Angs, Ohio. Turning from fountain design to photography in 1963, Mount Weasel produced her celebrated portraits of the South Sierra Mwok in 1964. She was awarded government grants to make a series of photo essays of unusual subject matter, including New York City buses, the cemeteries of Paris, and rural American mailboxes. The last group was exhibited extensively abroad and published as Flags Up, 1972. Mount Weasel died at 31 in an explosion while on assignment for Combustibles magazine. Yeah, somebody had a lot of fun with that. Probably too much fun, actually. Lillian Mount Weasel was such an outrageous fictitious entry that her name has become a term for fictitious entries, i.e. Mount Weasels. Encyclopedias have Mount Weasels, dictionaries have Mount Weasels, phone books have Mount Weasels, and of course, maps have Mount Weasels, although the cartography world doesn't call them that. Instead, when a map company puts a fake street on their pages, they call it a trap street, as in copyright trap. Sometimes, maps will even include whole cities that are made up. These are called, variously, phantom settlements, fictitious towns, or paper towns, which is the title of a John Green book that I have never read or seen the film adaptation of, but which I suspect might have already told this story and thus totally screwed me over. Sorry, John, and also, screw you, John! See, one of the most famous paper towns is Aglo, New York, which a brief Googling suggests plays a part, fingers crossed, perhaps a small part, in Green's novel. But that's not what makes Aglo so notorious. No, what makes Aglo, New York such an exceptional paper town is that it worked a little too well. Aglo, New York was conjured up by Otto G. Lindbergh and Ernest Alpers. They came up with the name by scrambling their initials. In the 1930s, the New Yorker called Lindbergh the biggest map maker in the East, with his firm, General Drafting Company, printing 20 million maps a year. And Ernest Alpers was his assistant. General Drafting Company made maps for a lot of clients. They had one that showed off every YMCA in the world, another marking the journeys of George Washington, and even a map of Newark that centered their client as the beating heart of town, a casket factory. But far and away, their biggest client was Standard Oil, 
for whom they produced roadmaps of the continental United States, Canada, and Cuba. That made them one of the most ubiquitous map makers of the time. Anyone who went into a standard oil station, who had essentially a monopoly on American gasoline to buy a map, came out with one of GDCs. And if that map buyer stopped into a New York standard oil station, they came out with a map that included the small town of Aglo, New York, a tiny town in the Catskills off of an unmarked country road north of Rockland. The trap was set. And in just a few years, it snapped closed. General Drafting Company discovered that Rand McNally's roadmap of New York State also had an Aglo, New York, in the same exact place as theirs. Lindbergh had Rand McNally dead to rights. Not so fast, said Rand McNally. They hadn't copied GDC's map. Well, then how did you end up with Aglo on your map, GDC countered. Simple, said Rand McNally. We got it from Delaware County. The official county survey also showed Aglo. Okay, then. Obviously, the county surveyors had been the ones that copied GDC's map, right? Hmm, not quite. The county surveyors hadn't copied anybody. They had taken from their official records, which showed, on the location in question, a store called Aglo General Store. The owners had bought the land and built a shop there, thinking there'd be business, because their map said it was the center of a town called, naturally, Aglo, New York. They'd gotten their map from a standard oil station. By freakish happenstance, Otto G. Lindbergh and Ernest Alpers had called Aglo out of the darkness and into existence. The problem for the Aglo General Store, however, was that in every other respect, Aglo did not exist. And so, not long after the fracas, the store went out of business, and Aglo New York went from being fake, to being real, to being gone. Anyway, what about your cartoon kitty map company? If you wanted to pull Google Maps data, would they catch you? Which is another way of asking, does Google Maps contain paper towns? We know that Google proper deploys Mount Weasels in their search engine because they used them in 2011 to prove that Microsoft Bing was actually aping their algorithm. But what about Google Maps? Do they have copyright traps set? Probably not. I mean, I can't say for sure, but in theory, the old-fashioned practice of fictitious entries died in 1991 when Feist Publications sued Rural Telephone Service Co. Feist had included 28 fake listings in their phone book, and RTS had been caught copying four of them. But Rural Telephone Service argued that facts, like phone numbers, encyclopedia entries, and map markers, were uncopyrightable, even if they were fake facts. In a 9-0 opinion, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. You can read more about the case via the Vodacast app right now. So, it is possible that Google or Merriam-Webster or Rand McNally or whoever else are still including fictional entries in their resources. But even if Cartoon Kitty Mapco were caught copying from them, you'd be, legally speaking, in the clear. On the other hand, do you really want to be like Bing? In Germany, before the war, 
On November 20th, 1943, the U.S. Air Force bombed the German town of Duren. This was not a particularly spectacular or interesting action, but what happened next was. Having completed their mission, the 119 American bombers turned around and made for base. But the German skies on October 20th were cloudy, and so visibility wasn't good. When the American planes got on their bombing runs, they would drop chaff, messes of lightweight aluminum meant to confuse enemy radar, and it's possible that the chaff caught the wind and was carried southward, leading the Germans to believe that the attack on Duren was just an appetizer before a larger run. On the ground, German observers could hear planes flying and also thought they were traveling south. When Ermann Goering, second in Hitler's command, head of the Luftwaffe, and overall just a really nice guy, received the radar and or observational reports suggesting American planes were headed south, he knew just what they were up to. A week before, the Americans had bombed Schweinfurt, where most of the Germans' ball bearings were manufactured. Sounds kind of trivial, but ball bearings were essential to building tanks, guns, airplanes, and all manner of war machines. They were like the lifeblood of the Nazi military, and Goering wasn't about to let the Americans injure them further. He ordered all planes into the sky to intercept the American attack, which, again, wasn't happening. But the sudden presence of every airworthy plane in central Germany only added to the impression that something big was underway. Land observers could hear even more planes headed south, and radar could see them too. Goering ordered them to defend Schweinfurt, but when the Luftwaffe got there, they couldn't find any sign of the enemy. Damn, thought Goering. They must be headed for Luna. Luna was the heart of another part of Germany's war effort. They had a large factory there that turned coal into synthetic fuel for the very planes Goering was now ordering them to protect. Get to Luna, he reordered the Luftwaffe. But yet again, when German aviators arrived above Luna, there were still no American bombers to be found. However, reports of aircraft flying overhead continued to reach Goering, and somehow the tactical genius still hadn't put together that his planes were chasing themselves. So he ordered them to fly to Pilsen, where the Germans were producing most of their naval cannons. Of course, there were no American bombers at Pilsen either, but this time things were different. For starters, the sky over Pilsen was clear, which allowed ground defenses to finally state the obvious. The only planes in the air were German. But there were also far fewer of them. After hours of snipe hunting, the German planes were running low on fuel, and many of them had to peel off and land. As they did, the radar screens began, coincidentally, to clear of enemies. This isn't the story of Goering goosing his own air force, though. It's the story of the telegram he sent to his airbases once he realized he had goosed his own air force. That telegram offered everyone involved in operations on October 20th congratulations for, quote, the successful defense of the fortress of Kubenik. There was no fortress Kubenik. It was a joke, a reference to another military operation from nearly 40 years before. On October 16, 1906, a garrison of German soldiers marched into the city hall of Kopenick, north of Berlin. The officer in charge had the exits blocked and instructed the local police to keep the peace and cut off communications from the town while he undertook his investigation. He called forth the town treasurer and mayor and had them both arrested. They were under suspicion, he told them, of cooking the books. 
While the soldiers took the mayor and treasurer to Berlin for interrogation, the captain took temporary possession of the city's treasury, 4,002 gold marks that he confiscated as evidence of the crime. He told his remaining men to stand guard at the city hall while he delivered the cash to the investigators. Then the captain marched off and never came back. It took a couple of hours for everyone involved to realize they'd been hoodwinked. When Mayor Langerhans and Treasurer Wiltberg arrived in Berlin, they and their escorts were greeted with confusion. Nobody at the Royal Guardhouse knew anything about the investigation, or the crime, or the orders to make a former of the latter. Ten days later, Wilhelm Voigt, a 47-year-old shoemaker and ex-con, was arrested for robbing the city of Köpenick. He'd spent more than half his life in prison for various instances of burglary, theft, and forgery. Most seriously, he'd spent 15 years in jail for trying to rob a court cashier. He'd been released just a half a year before his great caper. The popular accounts like to say that Voigt was ready to go straight this time, but that he was stymied by the police state. He'd been living with his sister in Rixdorf and working for a shoemaker in Berlin, but the Berlin police banished him from the city because of his previous convictions. He had to quit his job and told the authorities he was heading for Hamburg. In truth, he stayed in Berlin, living there without papers. Without papers, he couldn't get another job, and without another job, he couldn't get new papers. So, he decided to pull one more crime. Of course, this is the popular account, and it's somewhat contradicted by the fact that his ex-cellmate was the one that ratted him out and got him arrested. How he could have known about the plot if the plot were only hatched well after he was released from prison? It's hard to say, huh? All the same, he certainly did decide to pull off a crime. In the weeks leading up to the event, he compiled a German officer's uniform out of bits and pieces foraged from second-hand stores around the city. Coats, pants, gloves, boots, hat, even an officer's sword. Then he went down to the military barracks at Plotzensee and started commanding soldiers. He ordered five men, four grenadiers and their commanding sergeant, to come along with him on a mission, but soon became wary of the sergeant and dismissed him. With four subordinates in tow, he marched off to the shooting range and added six soldiers there to his ranks. Then they all got on the train for Kopenick for what Voigt told his men was a sensitive mission directed by the Kaiser himself. Again, according to the popular accounts, Voigt wasn't even planning on robbing anything, which I find especially dubious, but the folk legends say that he was only after some papers so he could get a proper job again. According to this version, he only turned his mind to robbery when he discovered the passport office at City Hall closed. Yes, I too am doubtful. The more reliable account says that he walked into the city hall, ordered his soldiers to load their guns and affix their bayonets, blocked the exits, and told the police he was acting on orders from Kaiser Wilhelm's cabinet. Just like the soldiers, the police obeyed Voigt without hesitation or question. He told them to secure the telegraph lines out of town for state use and ordered them to open up the mayor and treasurer's office. When he examined the books for the municipal treasury, he said there was a discrepancy of one mark. So he confiscated the money, had it put in a sealed bag, and said he would personally deliver it to Berlin. He would meet the mayor and treasurer, who were taken by car and accompanied by their wives, there, along with the money. Except, obviously, he did not. When everyone realized they'd been duped, they sent out the 1906 equivalent of an all-points bulletin, reading, 
He is about 45 to 50 years old, slim build, has a thick gray drooping mustache, and a shaved chin. The face is wide and one cheekbone protrudes, giving the face a lopsided appearance. The nose is smashed in and the legs are bent slightly outwards. He was dressed in an infantry uniform, hat with the rank insignia of a captain of the 1st Guard Regiment Zufub, long trousers, high boots with spurs, white gloves, and a sash. He carried an officer's rapier with a star badge. After being turned in by his cellmate, Voigt's trial was quick. Just six weeks after the heist, he was sentenced to four years in prison. But all those folktale versions of his story, where he was just trying to go straight, just trying to get his papers, just trying to work as a shoemaker, etc., well, they were already at play. The public loved the captain of Kopenick. He embodied not only the foolhardy deference to military authority that allowed soldiers to abuse them so much of the time, but also the bureaucratic morass that abused them the rest of the time. Voigt was instantly seen as something of a latter-day Robin Hood, even by Kaiser Wilhelm himself, who allegedly called him an amiable scoundrel. He was pardoned soon after sentencing. The first thing he did after his release was model for a wax figure, which he then proceeded to stand by, signing autographs for a small fee. He appeared in a play about the incident, as himself, of course, and faked his own death to get publicity for it. Within three years of his release, he'd written a book entitled How I Became the Captain of Kaepernick, and toured around the world promoting it. In London, to sell his book, he stopped by Madame Tussauds to pose for yet another wax figure. His story became the plot of several more plays, short stories, and at least eight movies, most of which naturally followed the folk hero version of events. You can see one of their Rotten Tomatoes pages on the Vodacast app right now. But by 1910, Voigt was done with it. He'd made enough money to settle down in Luxembourg, where he bought a house and became, at long last, an honest shoemaker. So, maybe there was something to the folktales after all. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. Special thanks go out to Heather Chrysler for reading our title cards, to Chris Schoen for turning me on to the story of the house finch, and to all the Patreon supporters who make this show possible, especially John Kruger and Gene M. Bickle. If you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash theconstant, and you can get access to the secret feed, where smaller stories like the ones you just listened to abound. Do me a quick favor. If you like the show, tell a friend or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Word of mouth from people like you is the number one way people find this show, and people finding this show is the number one way I get to keep making it. The power is yours. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Ministry of Ideas, whose latest episode is a comprehensive look at our shifting understanding of time, from religious requirements to capitalist extremes. It's a fascinating episode that dovetails spookily well with a story I'm working on for the next episode of this show. So go check it out at ministryofideas.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where... Let's just see what happens if we Google Chicago trivia. Okay, ready? Top line result from Chicago, Illinois, which rests on 234 square miles of land. Wow, imagine that. This has been The Constant. The Constant.